right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 271. With that number, we look back to the 2013 NWSL season. That was the very first season of the league. Average attendance was 4,271. And get this, average attendance for the 2019 season that just wrapped up, 7,389 upwards and onwards. And we got to note there's only one season of American women's pro soccer that has seen higher attendance than the 2019 season. And that would be the inaugural season of the WSA back in 2001. All right. So two chats today. First with my pal Chelsea Bush from Equalizer Soccer. We talked about the nominees for U.S. Player of the Year, rather, U.S. Female Athlete of the Year. Also talked about Vlako Nanovsky's roster for the upcoming December uh, kind of talent identification camp. Of course, none of the World Cup players were called into this camp. Um, lots of great things to say about this roster, and a lot of those players um, will even be able to see this weekend in the NCAA Division I Women's College Cup. And then I had an interesting chat with Rachel Allison, author of Kicking Center, Gender and the Selling of Women's Professional Soccer. Rachel had the incredible opportunity of being embedded with one of the WPS clubs back in the final season of that league, that being 2011, um, and got to study all the behind the scenes of marketing, sales, promotions, um, Lots of great, great stuff in her book. It is an academic book. It is a dissertation. So it's, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say a fun read. I would say it's a fascinating read. Definitely required reading for anybody who's as addicted to Woso as most of us are that listen to this podcast. All right. So two great chats. Hope you enjoy them both. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Chelsea Bush from EqualizerSoccer.com, ready to talk about the end of the year for the U.S. Women's National Team. And and Chelsea, the first thing, of course, we have to talk about are the nominees for U.S. Soccer Female Athlete of the Year. So first thoughts on on, on those. I mean, it's it's not a surprising list, um, but I would say it's a better list than some other nominee lists we've seen out there. Uh, yeah, just a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think anyone is It's really a surprise. They all pretty much had pretty strong World Cups, and that's what's going to stand out in, in a World Cup year. Um, for me, I think that the Juilliards is just ahead above everybody else as far as, as consistency for both club and for country. And this may be a U.S. soccer world and, and in theory. That maybe not considering club form, but it, I, I do. And and. You know, some of these players did really play a whole lot this year, even though they, they played well than they did. And I just think she just brings that sort of consistency, no matter what jersey she puts on. And that, for me, um, even though she's in a position that doesn't get a lot of uh, love very often, I, that would be my choice. Well, and I like that you brought up club and country because I think that should always be considered as well. And we've seen so many awards, especially in a World Cup year, that don't look at club play, just look at international play, whatever the international, you know, tournament of the year is. And it's nice to see two of the six nominees coming from a team that made the NWSL final. Um, In a way, it's surprising that there's no North Carolina player on it. I, you know, I'm a little curious that Crystal Dunn's not on there, but when you do look at North Carolina's roster, there's so much talent there, but not a lot of it is coming from the national team or got to see a lot of time with the national team, you know, like, like yeah, Jessica and, McDonald and Abby Dalkemper is like, there's nothing sexy about that center back role. So exactly. That's the problem. I think is they have a whole lot of talent, but not necessarily maybe the star power, star power. Yeah. I think yeah. This was, this or the star power happens to be year. Brazilian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would have, I would have thought, you know, the courage. I think Dal Kemper and Mewis were were also very good choices, and that's kind of my my little nitpick with this is, you know, you look at Rapino or Morgan or, or Lavelle, they didn't really play a whole lot for their clubs. Yeah, um, and that's and even for the U.S., they missed some games, you know, so that's a little bit frustrating. And you have yeah. someone I would also mention like Kristen Press. I thought had a very, very, very 
strong. Yes. Probably should have been included in this group. I, I would say she had the best post World Cup performance of any of the 23 U.S. players. And I, yeah, I think probably her most consistent year for, for the U.S. in particular. Yeah. Um, I, I thought she, she played very, very well. I guess in a way, I'd like them to do a after the World Cup, like, hey, fans, vote for who had the best World Cup, right? And then this can be a whole separate thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a yeah. huge fan of, of fan votes in general, but I think if you right. do kind of have the two separate ones, yeah, I think that would be that would be great because it is easy to say, oh, Megan Rapinoe had you know a pretty strong World Cup, and obviously her name has just been all over the place, and so it's hard to, to let that sort of filter into your brain, and you because you hear it so often, you start I'm like thinking, oh, well, but keep talking about Megan Rapinoe, she must just be blowing it up everywhere. And yeah, that's not actually what's reflected on the field. Well, and we see this a lot in awards beyond just sporting awards. You kind of see it in movies and other areas or once once someone has won an award that it's like it seems like the other ones go with it, even when it's, you know, maybe different criteria or different pool of voters. And, you know, not to knock what was an incredible World Cup run for Rapino, but I don't think it, yeah, it's, it's like, what are the criteria for this award? And, and I would say when you look at the whole year, I, I got to say Julie Ertz. Yep. You know, I'm right there with you, Jen. And I have to say, I'm excited to see Alyssa Nair, you know, on, on the list uh, because she did have an stellar World Cup and, you know, a really strong club season to take her team all the way to the final. And, you know, if, if, if anyone's upset about Chicago losing 4-0, I wouldn't put the blame for any of those four goals on the keeper. But that's just No, me. no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a whole other conversation there, but I agree. <laughs> so we'll know that winner soon enough um and of course as soon as the college cup is over this weekend we have uh, a december camp no women's world cup players can be called up they have a mandatory off month which is good they got got some rest to do before they jump right into olympic qualifying next year um so a very interesting roster and we haven't gotten to see a roster like this in a long time where you know that not only the coach has the option of calling in non-regulars they can't even call in the regulars so i would i think we've all been just like drooling waiting for this roster to come out and it was perfect timing that they drop it right before thanksgiving when we're all you know the hungriest um so when you first saw the list of the 24 players what, what were your first thoughts on on some of the names that you saw um, I kind of sort of draw it into, you know, two or three categories. You know, I think they're, as far as NWSL names go, I think you're definitely seeing some players get rewarded for having very good seasons. And I, I like that. I like that, you know, there were times and maybe unfairly, but there were times that Jill Ellis was accused of not, you know, really considering club form. And so I think here, this is, you know, you look at someone like, like Sarah Gordon, um, that is 100% a reward for having a very strong year. And so I like that maybe you know, not, not all of them probably have what it takes to go to the next level, but I like that they're, they're getting a shot. They're getting an opportunity because they put in the work. So I like that. Um, you know, I, I don't maybe necessarily agree with all the names. Like I said, I think there are some players on there that I don't really see jumping to the next level, but I love the number of, of college players that are on there though. They're, we're going to see, we are going to see some of them on the national team, I think. And we're going to see some of them in the NWSL. And we're going to see some of them as, as early as, as next season. And you look at someone like, say, like Ali Watt. I, for me, I see that's, that's a first-round draft pick right there. And so right. I kind of have pegged, pegged to, to, be, to have the tools to jump to the to senior level for a while. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really excited. I am I'm super stoked. I wish – I don't necessarily wish there were games. I wish there was some way we could see something come out of this camp other than waiting to see who gets another call up in January camp. Like, like a, you know, a two 30 minute half scrimmage against a, a college boys team or something like that, that we could watch online, you know, just something, right? Yeah. Something like, even if it's just an inter-squad, you know, you split them into two yeah. squads and then they scrimmage each other. Yeah. Something to see them. Yeah. Outside of the normal NWSL or, or college teams or even the youth teams. Yeah. And I was a little surprised at first to see so many college players on the list. But then the more I thought about it, 
I guess I was expecting it would be like 80% NWSL. But the more I thought about it, it's like, well, you know, you always have to be looking to the future. It's a perfect opportunity to reward a college player who has had a stellar college season, who, you know, might not be ready yet, but, but you're, you're, you're building those blocks, right? Like we've seen in Jill Ellis's tenure, we saw Brianna Pinto get a call-up, Jalen Howell get a call-up, Lavelle, several call-ups before she finally got capped, right? You know, that, that you know, Midge Purse had some call-ups and then she just got her her first cap last month. So it's it's not a suddenly all these people are on the national team, but it's like, hey, let's, let's evaluate, you know? Um, and of course, I'm happy to see some of the people who have a few caps with the national team get the call back in like Ashley Hatch, Daniel Colaprico, um, and Christy Mewis. Christy yeah, Mewis, who is not, yeah, Christy Mewis has not been capped since 2014. You know, when I, when I heard that she was on the list, I'm like, wow. I mean, it made me smile so big as someone who has worked so hard to come back, you know, from an injury, um, looks like she has much more to give and has been just such, you know, a veteran of this league, you know, someone who was a 2013 draft pick picked by Vlako Anonofsky, you know, for FC Kansas City, you know, has been, you know, has played in some major games for the U.S. national team. And I feel like she's one of those players who kind of fell into that. I, I call it the lost generation, the U.S. national team, the players that when we had that area from Ellis coming back in as Ellis taking over for Sermani um, and not really having the freedom to cap anyone. Right. So it's, it's like, you kind of lost like Jen Buskowski, Leanne Robinson, a lot of like, like, like people that were on the verge had, you know, Amber Brooks, maybe, you know, like getting one cap and then just not develop past that point. And for a lot of them, it is kind of too late. I mean, you, you hate to say it, but it's like when there's so much young talent coming up, how much time does a new coach develop to a player who's 29, 30, you know? Um, so that one surprised me, but, but kind of delighted me at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit I was surprised too. I'm just glad that she's there as a midfielder this time and not an outside back. Yes. No offense to Tom Sermani, but was not Yes, that's a really good point too. <laughs> well, and then goalkeepers, I I guess I'd assume that there would be three called in, but then I realized okay, it's a twenty four player camp, that's pretty lean because I assumed it would be Jane and Casey and one other goalkeeper. And a friend of my asked, I was like, well, who else were you thinking? I was like, well, I didn't really have a specific person in mind. I just thought it might be, hey, here's another chance to to look at somebody, you know, maybe a college keeper or an American keeper who's been playing abroad. Yeah. Um, but with that too, in a way it tells me, and maybe I'm reading the tea leaves too closely, it, it tells me that we're not going to see French and Harris um, move on just yet, if that makes any sense. That that it's like that the pool to me seems to be Nair, Harris, French, Bledsoe, Campbell, Murphy, and that's a plenty big pool for you know for going into Olympic year and having to only pick two, right? Yeah, I was I thinking, thinking I was that I was thinking of... that we could kind of gauge, you know, if there's more keepers on his list, then maybe the number two and current number current number two and three, you know, could be displaced. But what do you think? Um, I think a couple things, um, specifically about goalkeepers. I kind of thought we maybe would see Bledsoe again. And, you know, it, it could, I think, be one of two things. Either part of it is because she's playing in Australia, and I think that there are some players. Bledsoe, uh, Sam Staub is, is one that jumps out at me as, as someone I right. thought would be on this roster. But right. I because they're playing in Australia, they're they're not going to call them back just for a, an ID camp. You know, maybe maybe they'll get called into January camp and miss and I'm, I'm like pretty that. sure I'm pretty sure that's what happened because it doesn't necessarily make sense to interrupt that schedule, um, especially when it's such a long flight back. I think the first press release said something about that they didn't call any of those in because by the time they arrived and adjusted to the, you know, the time zone for training, well then they'd have to leave in two days. Where Haley Mays yeah. flying over from Sweden, that's a much much shorter flight compared to. Yeah you know, Australia to, to, to Florida. So I'm glad then that Aubrey Bledsoe got that, the, the November camp to, you know, to get that time. And yeah, and for sure. I, I agree with you. I would think maybe January, it would be a larger camp and then it just gets cut down. Yeah. And I mean, it could mean that maybe he, he 
you know, saw enough in, in that camp that she was in and, and is not quite, in the, you know, where she thinks she's to be in the picking order or, or he did see enough. You know, it's it's kind of hard to tell. And I think January can yeah. a little bit more. But, yeah, I, I just, you know, going back to kind of what you said about how many college players, because, I mean, the chances of these players making the Olympic roster is pretty slim. You know, they're, they're they right. Could happen. This is a long term vision camp exactly so these are players and it's just as much for the players as it is for the coaching staff right like these are players who are like you've been identified but here's what it takes here's what we're looking for here's the level you need to be at to play and so it gives them it's it's just another opportunity to develop so they're not necessarily going to get at their college team or even you know if they're playing maybe you know uh, semi-pro in the summers or something like that. It's 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 showing them what it takes, and so I think it's it's just so much, as much an opportunity for the players as it is for the coaching staff. Right, and it's it's an opportunity for feedback that you might not be getting from playing in a certain conference or for a certain club. Right? Yeah, that, I mean, and, that, yeah, and even for with the NWSL, it's it's still we've seen that it's. Just because you're really good for your club doesn't mean you have what it takes to go to that next level. The the senior international level, particularly for the number one team in the world, is just it's a whole other level, a whole other level. And and so yeah, I, I think I'm just I'm so excited about. It. I, I know I keep saying that, but I really am. Even though like I said, there maybe wouldn't have picked every player on here. Maybe there there are a couple that I think. I'm surprised aren't there. Um, Kaylee Real from Prince State is another one that I, I thought would be a probably a potential first round draft pick, and is someone I, I think has a lot of potential. And I'm surprised not to see her on there as well. But overall, it, it's a good roster, and, and their players, you know, Jordan DiBiase, uh, Vanessa DiBernardo, you know, th- those are players that have put in the work and at least should be looked at. You know, I yeah. Know. I'm not there. I can't say if, if that's like I said. It's it's another level, but the fact that Devaco is is putting so much work into identifying stuff for a long term plan, I, I just I really like it. Well, and, and there's a lot of players on this roster that we'll get to see this weekend in the Women's College Cup. So you know you've got North Carolina, UCLA, Stanford, and Washington State. So Brianna Pinto. You know, playing for UNC, of course, Macy Bell. Emily Fox has been replaced by Jalen Howell, so she won't be there. But Naomi Germa from Stanford, as well as Sophia Smith. You know, it's like, it's kind of great to see, like, if you don't know these names, you know, you'll be able to see these names play yeah. this weekend. You know, we yeah, got the semifinals Friday night and the, and the championship Sunday night. Exactly. Naomi Germa is someone that people really should not write off. I think she goes a little bit under the radar but just an excellent, excellent defender and someone, you know, I think down the road we're going to see in the NWSL. Hopefully we're going to see in the NWSL and someone to, to really keep your eye on. Because it's, it's so fun to kind of, for those who don't watch the college game, it's 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 a whole other ball, ball game, but it's so fun to watch these. And then to see them in a year or two or even three pop up at NWSL and do really right. good. It's, it's just fun to see them evolve. Like, oh, I remember that girl from, from the College Cup or even like the U-20s, and here she is, and she's playing week in and week out. It, it's kind of fun to see them grow up a little bit like that. Well, and I noticed when the roster came out, my, my first thought was, as I'm, I'm already looking ahead to the 2020 NWSL College Draft, is who, you know, which one of these players are going to be on the draft board? I'm like, none. I think maybe Ali Watt, but everyone else, if they're a college player, they've got another they're year very to play. Young. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I was like very sneaky, Vladko, not 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 artificially inflating somebody's draft value by suddenly the person's on a you know, on a on Which a camp is interesting, list. You know, because I feel like the last several years we've really had sort of that that national team are kind of pegged. You know, we've we've had Morgan Bryan, you've had Emily Sonnet, had Tierna Davidson. You kind of have known who was the first round draft or who the very first draft pick was going to be, um, just based on who had kind of been pulled up to the national team at the end of their college career. And I don't know that we have that this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um so it, it's like, okay. It's all next year's draft, you know. Um, but just like like I said, I, I'm I'm excited about this roster. I wish we could see it more, but I'm glad that um, you know, we've got at least the college cup games to watch. And I do want to give a shout out too to uh midfielder Sarah Killian getting called back in again because one one interview that always sticks out in my mind, it was one of my very first mix zone interviews was with Tom Sermani early in 2014, um, but it was after the NWSL draft. And, 
one of the questions he asked me when he had heard that the draft has happened, he said, how high did Sarah Killian get picked? And because he was just, he was so high on her skills and her talent. And I was like, oh, she went number two. He's like, awesome. You know, um, so it was just, it was funny. Maybe that was 2015. Sorry, that was 2015. Um, but like, that just always sticks in my head that, that a coach like that valued a player. And she came into camp for the Algarve Cup. Okay. Yeah. Mixing up my timeline. He was no longer the coach. Yeah. I think it was he, 14. Yeah, no, it was, it was 2015 that, she, that um, he asked me about it or no. Yeah. It was 2015 that I interviewed him. He was already no longer coach, but he was very curious about Sarah Killian. She had come into the Algarve cup camp the previous year under him, but did not get capped. Um, so that's why he was like, he was still following her career as, as like, you know, what a great player. I want to see what happens to her. So that's always in the back of my head. Anytime I see her name. So when I saw you're on the list, I was like, Oh, good for her, you know, and yeah. she played every single minute for sky blue this season, I think stepped up as a leader in a way that we hadn't seen her before. And, and speaking of sky blue Paige Monahan, you know, Butler's never had Butler university's never had anybody on the national team before. So that's kind of cool to see as well. Well, and, and also, you know, Bethany Balser. Yeah. Son, yeah. How can we not mention the, the incredible the, to incredible? Yeah. The, the, the rookie of the, the rookie of the year. Um, but yeah, just a, a good mix. And I'm looking forward to, of course, to January where of course you and I are just guessing, but it's like, I would assume there would be a large camp roster that then gets reduced to the 18 or 20 that go probably 20 that, that play Olympic qualifying, but that's, that's coming up right around the corner. But I, I have to say it again. I'm so glad that the players, the current players negotiated for this mandatory break, because I kind of think back to December, 2015 and just how brutal it was that they were still going that late in the year after having an incredibly long year and that they had to turn around right in January and have a friendly and then go into qualifying and, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it never stops. And that's just, that's not good for you as an athlete. You know, they're not being prima donnas by saying we need that month off. It's like, that's, that helps everything. The longevity of your career, your overall health, fewer injuries, and gives us this incredible, incredible opportunity for some young players to get, get a look. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think they deserve the rest. I think that their calendar's been been pretty packed for a long time. And you look at next year, you know, January camp, February qualifying. She believes in March, and I'm sure, you know, then you start the USL. Plus, there are going to be send off friendlies, and it's it's kind of a, a just a sprint towards you know the end of the, that next NWSL season, and with the Olympics smack dab in the middle, and and whatever sort of tour comes after the the Olympics depending on I suppose on on how they do it just it sounds exhausting and so I'm sure and I hope they're all enjoying that time off and really actually you know obviously getting themselves ready for January camp but but really giving them body their bodies the rest they need and you look at how many have been it feels like perpetually injured and they just need that so bad and I really wonder um if NWSL is going to stick with the 24 game season like they did this year, unlike, you know, 2015, they went down to 20 games. Um, but we did 24 in 2019 because it was an extended season. Now, 2016, do we stay at 24 or, you know, because of where the Olympics falls later in the season, do we go back to 20? And also think about, I didn't realize till a few weeks ago that the Australian season does not end until mid-March. So does that push back the start of the NWSL season? Does it not? And then those players just can't come over till they're done. You know, like yeah. a lot of questions. Yeah. And I mean, and this is really the month of questions for NWSL, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's another one kind of lurking under there where it's, it's like, okay, it might make more sense in this crazy crowded year to go down to a 20 game season. Well, and, and but given the, the... Go ahead. 
I was going to say, let me throw another another kind of uh, wrench in there for you. It also, you know, the number of games may also depend on how many teams we have next season. That except, seems to be kind of up in the air. Except I've noticed that regardless of number of teams, they seem to stick to 20 or 24. Um, other than okay. other than other than the first year, because one of the things that threw off the dash, well, the end, or rather, the dash threw off the league. Twenty fourteen, they come on as the nine team. The league had already decided the length, the calendar length of the season, and so the question was, do we stay at twenty games or do we increase? And with nine teams, it is kind of nice that with nine teams, you play everybody three times, you get twenty four games, right? Nice and even. So they said, yeah, let's do 24 games. But the length of the season was so short that if you go back and look at that 2014 season, the last two months of the season, everybody's playing a game every four days. Like it was, it was yeah. brutal, you know? So like I, yeah. as crowded as this year is overall, the end of schedule I felt was the best we've ever seen in terms of for the most part, you were playing a game a week. Yeah, they didn't have as many midweek games as they've had in the past, yeah. but I really appreciate it. I personally like a little bit of a longer season. I like the 24 games, um, but it, if it comes down to that or midweek games, I, I am never, ever going to be on board with midweek games. I absolutely detest them. Yeah, yeah, got it. That That's the beauty of having an even number of teams is that we can get rid of bye weeks, which means for the most part, you can get rid of midweek games. Yeah, it's just brutal. I agree. Well, Chelsea, any last thoughts on what's been a pretty intense, amazing, crazy year for the U.S. Women's National Team? Oh, my gosh. I hope they get it what I would consider right with the Player of the Year award. I'll, I'll, I'll end with that. Fingers crossed. Yeah. None of them are, are undeserving, but I, I just think there are some or one that maybe just stand out more than others, and I hope that she gets rewarded for that. Here, here. I agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat women's national team with me. And of course, thanks for, for all the great work you do for Equalizer Soccer. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on, Jen. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Rachel Allison, author of a great book about promoting women's soccer called Kicking Center, Gender and the Selling of Women's Professional Soccer, Critical Issues in Sport and Society. Rachel, that is such a fancy title. So that tells me that you must have earned your PhD from that book. I did. Yeah. (laughs) Research for that book was my dissertation research. And I, I love the idea that you, you got to spend, what, like a, a year with a, a women's pro team, just tracking everything, absorbing everything? I did. I did. I thought that really if you wanted to understand some of the challenges and also some of the opportunities that women's pro soccer was facing in this in this particular era, um, somewhat earlier one for, for women's pro soccer, that you really needed to experience it. Um, I, I thought that it was likely different in different markets around the country. And so I wanted to see it firsthand. And so I was incredibly fortunate to be welcomed in to a team to work with them for about a year um, and, and really experienced all facets of their operation. And that was during the WPS era. So you got to see one of the WPS teams, right? Right. So I saw one of the, the WPS teams. This would have been the, the third and final year of the league's existence. I, I intended originally to stay longer, but of course, the, the league itself folded and that kind of made that impossible. Um, <laughs> so at that point, to, to finish the research, I, I turned to interviews and I interviewed um, people who had worked for every team that had ever operated in the league in its three years. Wow. So you got a pretty broad uh, exposure to to different teams and, and ways they were selling. Yeah. I was trying to understand this question of how we sell and, and market women's pro soccer using as many different angles and sources of data as I could. So talking to as many different people as I could from all of these different teams that had ever operated, talking to managers and staff people and fans and players and journalists, um, and also keeping track of a lot of the, the media coverage that the league was getting. So uh, well, how would you say 
things have changed since then. So you were you were doing most of this research 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I guess there's really two topics I want to talk about with you, um, you know, is one, the promoting to kids, mostly promoting women's soccer as a, is a, a kid sport or kids mm-hmm. entertainment avenue. Um, and then the promotion to gays and lesbians, which reading this book, it really opened my eyes of how far we've come in accepting that that's <laughs> accepting, acknowledging, celebrating that that is a huge fan base for this sport. Right. So, so with those two angles, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And with those yeah. two two angles, how have you see th- seen things change since your research, and and what has mm-hmm. not changed? Yeah, I think you're. I mean, you're absolutely right. Something have really changed. I think remarkably so in the last, you know, almost 10 years now. Other things have stayed more the same, at least as far as I can see now on the outside. So the specific team that I was with definitely defined their market as kids who played soccer, probably predominantly girls, although certainly soccer playing boys were welcome too. And so their market were these soccer kids and their parents. But the parents were largely there to kind of facilitate the, the interest and attachment of their kids to this sport. And this was really evident in a lot of their marketing materials, so the images, the stories that they put out. It was really evident in how they organized events, um, largely partnering with youth club teams in the area, um, focusing on specific suburban areas where soccer leagues operated rather than alternative spaces where they would likely have um, encountered different groups of potential fans. And what I show in the book is that there are some clear limits to this strategy uh, of really going after kids and kind of defining this sport as primarily for kids as fans. One is that most of these families who have soccer playing kids are incredibly busy. Right. They have some disposable income. They're really busy. It's often that their kid is involved in soccer and other things. So they might come to one, maybe two games at most, but they're not necessarily season ticket holders. And honestly, some of the families I talked to were really burnt out on soccer because they already were spending a lot of time and money on soccer. Right. So they didn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily have the, the time to devote to this sport. They weren't season ticket holders. They didn't necessarily know the players' names. They weren't as invested. But there were other fans who were present throughout the season who were very invested and knowledgeable, but they weren't really being targeted within team marketing campaigns. And so they became kind of invisible. And many of these fans really felt that invisibility. They felt like they were not as welcome among this team compared to to kids. That was certainly the case for gay and lesbian fans um, who felt like many of the team's promotional efforts were clearly heteronormative, right? That family was clearly defined as a heterosexual family, and so they were less than welcome. But also adults who came without kids, regardless of their sexual orientation, um, and especially men. Um, and I myself, I've you know taken my father. To, to multiple games, and he mm-hmm. also loves women's soccer. And I don't know if he would ever go without me um, or without, I, you know, without I've had, someone else. I've had some adult male friends when I've offered, like, I've had, like, one extra ticket. I'm like, hey, do you want this ticket? And they're like, I'd love to go, but I think I'd be interpreted as, you know, some kind of creepy old man sitting there. I'm like, yeah. no! <laughs> Unfortunately, no, my you're research not going says to a that kids game. <laughs> unfortunately, they perhaps right given the yeah. way that we've constructed this space, perhaps yeah. they would be perceived with some suspicion. But there's no reason why men can't be fans of women's soccer, and many are. <laughs> right, right, many, many are. I mean, I have yeah. to admit that way back in the day, it was a male co-ed soccer teammate of mine who said, hey, look, they're selling ticket packs uh, for the Women's World Cup next summer. Um, Mm. You know, why don't we all as a group go, you know, go to the games in San Jose, you know? So it was a a co-ed team group of mine that went out to the World Cup games in San Jose and Palo Alto in 1999. But it's it's like, yeah, it's like that was in his head more than it would have been in mine of like, hey, why don't we do this? Mm Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that 
some, some part of what, what I found has really changed. I think that the, the team that I studied was, they did not have a pride night. They were definitely hesitant to market explicitly to or acknowledge their gay and lesbian fans. I think they were concerned that that would put off other people, like potential corporate partners or others of their existing fans. Um, and even at the time, that wasn't uniform across WPS. There were other teams at the time who held Pride Nights or did right. recognition. So it's never been, you know, all or nothing. But I think we've seen a massive change in the last 10 years where now most teams in the NWSL will have Pride Nights, certainly acknowledge the gay, gay and lesbian fans very obviously. Um, and I think you see just recognition of gay and lesbian fans within teams' own fan clubs, on social media, online, and even merchandise, in the last rainbow merchandise. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. merchandise, pride jerseys, and even many of the players now are much more um, are much more willing to openly discuss sexuality. Right. Yeah, and yeah. that changed to me. I mean, reading your book, that that really jumped out at me. Um, reading about how they, you know, the team you studied was so reticent um, about even acknowledging, not just doing a pride night, but, but even acknowledging that that was a fan base. And it kind of, it opened my, my eyes of just like, <laughs> wow, we really have changed a lot in, in the mm-hmm. last decade. Um, yeah. Even, even NWSL itself, you know, we, we've we've seen that progress where there were, of course, a couple of teams that were slow uh, to do a Pride Night, but now it's it's something everybody's doing it, and you have Nike doing the shirts every every June. Um, we've mm-hmm. also seen the U.S. national team. You know, they've had some Junes where uh, you can you know get the Pride numbers. So it's it's like yeah, it, it's a thing where it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't a thing before. Right. And it's smart. I mean, it it just makes so much sense. I think even in the book, there was an interview that I did with one of the the ticket sales managers at the team I studied, and he estimated that 40% of their season ticket holders were lesbian women. Um, now, of course, would he might might he be off a little bit one way or another? Sure, probably. <laughs> that was kind of informal estimate based on his personal interactions with you know with the season ticket holders over time. But but that's enormous, right? That's a large proportion of season ticket holders. Um, and other research that's been done since the WPS years on fan cultures in the NWSL show that what existing fans love about the women's soccer community is in part it's inclusivity. Um, and right. so that's, I mean, so it just makes so much sense, even like business sense to, to really, to really acknowledge gay and lesbian fans and the contributions they're making to, to women's soccer. Right. I mean, one of the things that I, I love that the dash did uh, this summer, um, they, they kind of, co-opted a phrase that the supporters group had been using uh y'all means all um Mm -hmm. and that was that was the pride night t-shirt that they had it was a free t-shirt for anybody that that came to the game and just yeah so selling it like even bigger than pride night you know it's it's like total inclusivity yeah absolutely and it's that goes well beyond just the sexuality but but i think that's definitely important because that hasn't always been there historically, even though gay and lesbian fans have always been a very important part of the fan base. And so, you know, what, what other things did you learn in your research about, you know, things that worked well for selling and things that just kind of made you hit your head and Mm -hmm. go, what are they thinking? (laughs) (laughs) You know, one really interesting thing is that, the study I did was in the much earlier era of Twitter and social media. And it was very obvious to me that the league was very early adopting Twitter as a primary means of outreach to fans and that it was working. It was sparking a lot of conversations. It was connecting to people. Um, and, and I'm looking back, I mean, this was almost 10 years ago. It's incredible how quickly they were to jump on this media and, and adopt right. it and how well they, they did. But I think because this was so early and so new and, you know, not even not all sports teams were, were, were doing this at the time, there were a lot of really interesting questions about power and who got to make decisions about content. 
um, that I don't think we probably would, uh, see in the same way today. So questions about who gets to decide um, how, how players represent, represent themselves or their teams on social media. This was kind of a, a new question then. Um, the, the players that I spoke to who had played in WPS didn't necessarily have the same types of, of media training that they have now. Um, there were some interesting power struggles between players and staff on the team that I studied about whether or not they could tweet something, right? Like who got to decide, right? Did players have control? Did some of the people on the team have control? Um, and I, I think that's that, that conversation as well has probably really evolved. I don't know if you, you see that today. <laughs> but that's that's got to be a challenging conversation. And and I, I, I've actually thought about that a lot this year. We, we've seen some interesting tweets from NWSL uh-huh. players, whether it was Merritt Mathias's tweet uh, using <laughs> the F word about a specific right. player or mm-hmm. uh, Houston Dash, a couple of players tweeting um, about hey, League, why are you telling us to drive to the airport when the airport's underwater? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the League didn't didn't like that either. And it, it made yeah. me think about what kind of media training are these players getting? I would think that a lot of them get pretty good training at the college level, you know, mm-hmm. from, from the top conferences at the very least. Um, right. But I don't know if when they're hitting the NWSL teams, if there is necessarily media training uh, just based on, you know, how small these staffs tend to be. I mean, I remember seeing a, a documentary about the WSA and, and they had some video of a team going through media training, you know, that they, they were working so hard on uh, teaching these women, you know, it's like, you're going to be selling this league. And, and I, I wonder if that's done, you know, by any of the clubs in NWSL. Yeah. I, I would imagine it's it's not just based on, uh, you know, the, the pretty lean staffing that we've seen so far, but it's kind of something I hope that we'll see in the, in the future yeah. where, you know, not so much about censoring your tweets so much as thinking about, yeah. about, hey, what's the best, you know, what's in the best interest of all of us? Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, and I would think that the you know, as the NWSL Players Association, you know, they're getting more organized. They've been, you know, since last year, they've been recognized by the league that, you know, they might, you know, want to be communicating to the players, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you might be angry about X and want to tweet about it. But if you do hear are the consequences, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. like that, that, that balance of, of like, hey, you've got a voice. How do we all use that voice, you know, to the best effect? Or, yeah, to essentially advance our collective interests. Yeah, And I, it is a tension because I also think that sometimes when individual players have used their voice to expose things about insufficient standards within teams right. and this, at the league level, that is sometimes when we've seen the most change, positive change, um, when players had to speak out often using social media as their, you know, as their platforms. And, so, you know, some players have done that with issues at sky blue in the past and in the day yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't we, see sam we, kerr having having you know getting to talk to a reporter and making those things you know public it, it, it all of the coverage came from her tweet absolutely absolutely and i i mean and i i don't necessarily want to that to i don't want that to stop necessarily i think those have been really necessary conversations that have often sparked from players tweets like sam kerr and at the same time, I can certainly see how um, other people may be concerned about that, about, you know, airing the dirty laundry publicly versus internally and trying to solve it that way. Though I think it's it's really diplomatic how she did it, where she didn't do it when she was at Sky Blue. Mm-hmm. And, and the way she phrased her tweet, you know, after she was on this new team and they had just crushed Sky Blue, you know, that... She, you know, she talked about what it was like breaking her heart or something like that to see the condition. So it it was it yeah. it kind of you know made everybody look a certain direction, um, but was pretty diplomatic and certainly coming from a place of what's the best interest of ev- of everybody, without yeah. it being like, like the I didn't get X. It was like right. my former teammates who I really care about aren't getting X. Right, that they're their training and conditions are just, are just not up to, to par. 
Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. of course then be- turned into articles that the headline was like, Carly Lloyd is taking an ice bath in a trash can. And I felt like, is that all you got out of that story? Because actually, mm-hmm. ice baths very regularly happen in 55 gallon trash cans. But yeah, okay, if that, that's what you thought the most important part of that story was. <laughs> like okay yeah um and that's a whole different discussion of course is is the the media take of it um but i just i just find it so interesting i was so happy to to stumble across your your book and see that someone had kind of really gotten embedded with the team and and seen up close because we're you know, we we don't get to see that side very much. And of course, yeah. with the two previous leagues failing there, it's, it's easy to go, well, they should have done this and they should have done this and they should have done this. But, but within those leagues, there were some successes. You know, I know that the Boston Breakers team was the only one that was, you know, not having a loss. I mean, that they were, they were covering their costs and starting to make a profit towards the end of the third season of, of WSA, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, yeah. WPS, you know, I I think struggled for a, a lot more reasons. Um, you know, the, the timing, uh, the scale. Um, it seemed like that, that they were coming from a place of, hey, if we just, you know, do everything really cheaply, this will be fine. But hey, if you can yeah. cost too much, then you don't have, you know, yeah. you don't have the resources to to market a team. And it sounds like. Yeah the season that you were embedded in WPS that final mm-hmm. season was, I, I remember some teams that like cut their sales staff. It's like, well then how are you oh. going to sell tickets? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And that had definitely happened on the team. I think some of the earliest discussions that I had coming in were, well, this season we're starting with fewer people. We, how are we going to organize work <laughs> that used to be done by more people with fewer people? It was, I, that third season was very pared down, bare bones. Um, and I, I think you've, you've seen a slightly different approach, especially recently, recognizing that obviously we want to be budget conscious, we, but we have to spend some money to invest in this so that it grows and, you know, and ultimately can make money down the road. And, I, and recognizing that that's probably not going to happen quickly, right? Like every other professional sports league in the U.S. took a long time to break even. Many leagues MLS are, like, still, are MLS still not there. Still, yeah. 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 It's like lots of teams in leagues don't even hit that bar now. The expectation that we just like cut, cut, cut so that we can try to break even as soon as possible is just like not a viable model. <laughs> And and I think that to me is where uh, the worst case really of of gender bias exists. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in my opinion, is you know I've seen NWSL teams where it's like, well, as long as we sell, you know, as long as we sell three thousand tickets, we're good. And I'm like, wait, why? Why is your goal breaking even and not? making money, right? Like yeah. if you're starting a business, any business, you're not going into it thinking, okay, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to pay my bills. Like, no, yeah. you're going into a business going, how do I make this successful? What do I need to grow? You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that trickles down to employees. How do I get better employees? How do I, you know, get a better footprint? How do I advertise about all, all those things? And so, mm-hmm. I think what's been frustrating for me the the most over over the years of NWSL is is seeing that come up here and there of, of just like okay well we have a team like well that's great but <laughs> like that itself is not going to make you money just the fact that you exist right. isn't going to make you money and and I I'm really looking forward to whenever it happens the the change for NWSL from you know, being based with U.S. soccer to kind of going on its own, however that's going to mm-hmm. shape out, because then you, you don't have that safety net. You don't have, you know, if, if U.S. soccer doesn't have as much of a stake in it, then they can't be like, no, this is all fine. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's just, I, I, I think 
we saw a bump in 2015 that we barely took advantage of. We've had this yeah. another incredible bump this year that I think the league mm-hmm. has been able to take a little bit more advantage of and, and going yeah. into 2020, you know, but uh, I, I still, I still think it, there needs to be an attitude adjustment of, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I heard this this year and I heard this in 2015. It's like, if we don't win the win- women's world cup, this league is doomed. And it's like, wait, 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 <laughs> you can't have a business model that is dependent on the U S winning the world yeah. cup every four years. <laughs> right. Uh, that's not what happens sale. in the other year <laughs> that, you know, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. I like and, it. And, I like the idea of attitude change because, some of the, like for me doing the research, some of the most frustrating moments were not even with people, with like people within the league itself as much as they were in meetings with potential corporate partners. So mm-hmm. when you try to, you're dealing with external groups and trying to convince them that this is valuable, this is worthwhile, this is something that where there's opportunity, um, that's why you should invest in this. And in on the ground floor. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, think about the potential for some of this. And then sitting in those meetings and and having people humor you and ultimately tell you no, because the return isn't there. The return isn't big enough, right? So it's not that there's no return. There are people in the seats. There's eyeballs on Twitter. But it's not big enough. And it's almost like, like the expectation was that this has to be big now or it's not worth investing in at all and that's just not how growth works right so it's like but if but the idea is that through greater investment this will have an opportunity to grow over time and so like the attitude adjustment is also i think really really needed um not just within like the league in terms of how we think about this but also outside of it like we need to communicate the potential to external people, to media, to, to corporate uh, partners, and get them on board uh, with with what we're doing. And um, I saw an article, I think it was today, about Octagon and their work with the NWSL to secure media rights partner for the next three seasons. And the article, you know, said that Octagon's perspective is that it's just not good enough anymore to for you know, media entities to, to hop on board immediately after a World Cup or, or Olympic uh, victory and then disappear. <laughs> and that's the exact attitude adjustment that I think is needed. Like, it's just not good enough anymore to, to get that narrative. Yeah, there's there's so much that needs to change. It reminds me of something that Moya Dodd from FIFA said a few years ago that, you know, women's soccer is a startup business. And mm-hmm. how do you deal with a startup business? You work on it every day. And and she was speaking from a, from a place of frustration about FIFA, where it's like every now and then they'll have a meeting or a one-day event and say, oh, look what we did for women's soccer. It's like, no, it's every day. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes me, you know, similar to that. Yeah, if, as long as we win the World Cup every four years, I'm like, no, 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 no. The marketing needs to be much broader, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, and I think about... Um, it's it's easy to dismiss women's sports and go, yeah, but but the the ceiling's only going to be so high. It's like, but if you start with that attitude, you know, you're you're selling yourself short. And think about um, March Madness, the women's basketball tournament. Like mm-hmm. that's so big now. It's it's like, and it's a thing, you know. And people go to it and do the bracket, and and it's like, and you know, twenty five years ago, was that a thing? No. You know, it's, it's like yeah. you, you got to build it. Uh, you know, NFL is much, much older than we think it is. And it took a long time to to get to where it is now and, and to the ridiculously bloated um, yeah. <laughs> NFL. But, you know, I, I saw a documentary a few years ago about the USFL. I had kind of forgotten about that mm-hmm. from the 80s, but it 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 enlightened me that because of the USFL, it made the NFL raise their, their pay rate. So it's the kind of thing that like, Mm -hmm. you know, if most of us only think about like the, like the last 10 years, right. Just in in general, like your memory is only going to go so far. So we have this (laughs) whole population now that has no memory of there not being an MLS. So a lot of times they're like, well, MLS has this, we should have this too. It's like MLS just got that and they're in their 22nd (laughs) year, you know, that that Mm -hmm. it's like, but there is a, 
there's a progress and and I hope that you know the the decision makers on the on the clubs and and at the league are are, are thinking long term like that. Yeah, I hope so too. I think it, you're right. Our memory is short and taking really the long vision of of how other leagues have developed over time really I think gives you be- a better perspective on and the NWSL today. And it, it's a it's a really even though the NWSL is young and you know, it certainly has a lot of interesting issues right now. It's so exciting to be at this point. I mean, as somebody who's loved soccer for such a long time and watched, you know, two weeks fold, and it's an incredibly exciting time for the NWSL because there are a lot of new questions, questions that women's soccer has never really had to deal with before. Because they I know. Because been in the same place. And it's like these, all of these tricky questions about, you know, how they might manage separation from, from U.S. soccer. It's like, wow, what a great place to be in to have these new problems. <laughs> and and other leagues worldwide starting to get their footing, which was obviously not a problem that the WSA had, you know, right. um, yeah, it's it's such a fascinating juncture. And, you know, we're going into the eighth season. That's so, <laughs> so exciting. And to have Leon in negotiations to buy the rain, you know, like, <sighs> like, I know that has freaked out some people, but I think that speaks volumes to the success of what uh, the Predmores have been doing in, in the oh, Pacific absolutely. Northwest. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, and I'm so excited that uh, the team in Kentucky has been announced. That will now be the, the team that I can probably drive to realistically <laughs> for NWSL games. And I've been so disappointed here in Mississippi to have to be a kind of a, a TV fan. Um, and and we know there's tons fan. of TV fans out there, right? Like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be among them. Um, and I also really miss being able to go to games in person and I can't wait to go to Kentucky. <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk and thanks for the great book. And, uh, and I look forward to you being able to get to go to women's soccer games again too. Of course. Thank you so much. I really appreciate our chat today. All right, time to wrap it up at the back four. Speaking of four, we've got the final four this weekend in San Jose, California. Friday semifinals, both live on ESPNU. You've got first-timer Washington State playing perennial College Cup participant North Carolina, 6 p.m. Central kickoff time, followed by UCLA versus Stanford at 8.30 p.m. Central time, that one being a rematch of the 2017 College Cup final. And then Sunday is the championship game. Winners will meet in the final with kickoff set for 7.30 p.m. Central on ESPNU. Be sure to check out KeeperNotes.com for a few more details about the final four teams. And then thinking about college soccer, we've got the NWSL college draft set for Baltimore, Maryland in January. It'll be held Thursday, January 16th. Like the last several years, it will be part of the United Soccer Coaches Annual Convention, which is a huge deal. So many people there. Makes the draft so exciting. You have a lot of former players, coaches, national teamers walking around. The draft will stream live and will be free for fans to attend like the last few years. But keep your eye out on NWSLsoccer.com for more details about that. And as I mentioned before, Australia's W League season is well underway. Lots of current and former NWSL players playing for W League clubs. One game per week is available to watch live and via replay on ESPN+. So I do recommend buying that service. It is separate from any cable uh, access you might have to ESPN. It's just $5 a month for ESPN+, and includes lots of other soccer, including live and replay access. I would also suggest checking out WLeague.com, that being W-League.com.au, for streaming info for their other matches. Several are available via the W League app. And then Olympic qualifying starts in late January in Texas. And now we know the two groups of four teams after the draw last month. Canada will have all their group games 
in far south Texas, USA, all their group games in Houston. Semifinals and final will be played in LA. Tickets are on sale. You can check out ussoccer.com for ticketing info. And if you're thinking of heading to Houston for one of the USA group games, should be aware there's a great Dash ticket bundle. You can get the Dash 2020 home opener and any US group game of your choice as one package, with the price being either $37 or $57, depending on the seating location. Call my favorite Dash ticket rep, Jay Adelberg, at 713 713- Two seven six seven five two nine for more info. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Appreciate everyone listening. Appreciating the guests for taking the time to be on the podcast. I give thanks to anyone who has shared this podcast with someone else, and mostly give thanks to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.